Hello and welcome to Doctor Who 50 Years Ago, the show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, episode 5 of Inferno. It's getting hot in here, so take off all your morals. I am Ben. I am Luke. And I am Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. Firstly, news from the United Kingdom's 1970 general election. On Monday the 1st of June, the Times of London reports a strong counterswing to the Conservatives in the polls in marginal seats that Labour won in 1966. This occurs as the odds between Labour's and Conservatives' betting chances start to even out a bit. Yet on Wednesday the 3rd of June, the national opinion polls now predict a 5% swing to Labour overall. It's up and down with polls in this election, and it will continue to be so until the election day itself, pretty much. Well, an interesting point here that uh, corresponds to a recent electoral experience for us, the um, 2019 general election, is lots of people st- uh, looked at the uh, well, national polls and thought, oh, they won't have such a commanding majority. I, I believe I'm one of only the, th- the only one of the three of us that predicted roughly what Yes, 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 you are right. Yes, yes. And, yes. Um, and that was because I was paying attention to the local on the ground stuff where people were saying in what's called the Red Wall, which were former Labour constituencies in the Midlands and North Wales, where polling there showed a collapse in Labour support. And so it's interesting that it shows that localised polling of swing seats seems to be actually more useful for our elections than a headline national figure which makes sense because essentially a british general election is just 650 local elections isn't it really hmm. yeah for all its pomp and grandeur and circumstance yeah way to ruin it nick on tuesday the 2nd of june the deputy leader of the labour party george brown says to his constituency in leicestershire that a third consecutive labour victory in a general election would turn britain into something like sweden's social democrat party which has been in a government of some format since 1932. For irony's sake, I will note that George Brown was defeated in the 1970 general election in a 4% swing and again to the Conservatives. <laughs> Interesting, nowadays, Scotland a lot of the time tries to portray itself as sort of more allied to its Scandinavian roots. This has always been the case, I think, for, for many years, that people on the left quite often point to Sweden and say we should be more like that I think that's done in a lot of English-speaking countries but I mean I know it's here it is here um, often people in the Labour Party argue we should be more like Sweden Sweden does this why don't we, why can't we be like them so it's interesting that they were saying this in 1970 as well that's that's quite enough of election news we shall move on to more local news Hmm. on monday the 1st of june whilst the british police say that they are doing all they can to recruit more members from the colored minorities and that is an actual quote the chief constables are determined not to lower entrance requirements into the police force collating race with lower standards for jobs presents a subtle undertone of racism and i'm going to say no more on the subject Mm, but we will Oh, yeah, yeah, me and Luke will. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, didn't, I didn't read that as the police chief constables being 
saying a racist statement. It's more, I think, a reflection on attitudes at the time. People might think, oh, if we're having more police officers from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, that people might think, oh, they must have lowered the standards. How, how, is, how does this happen? Mm. And I, I think that reflects that there were, society was just a bit more racist 50 years ago. Because uh, when, when you can you can present it as a purely meritocratic element, but ultimately people's views and ideals on class, race, um, educated background and all that will taint the black and white meritocratic ideal. From a more modern day perspective, I kind of read this as, oh, that wheelchair lesbian got the job because they're just filling a diversity quota i thought they were more saying it as that sort of angle where they're saying we're not just gonna hire this person because he's black we're still going to be meritocratic about it and just to my mind it, it doesn't need to be said i mean it's you would just assume if someone's a police officer that they they got there by their own merits hmm. Uh, I just feel like a remark saying we're not going to lower the standards is just sort of pandering to people who might get concerned all of a sudden. Just not not the sort of, like I say, not out and out racist. Just just that sort of back of your mind, you know, subconscious, like not wanting to be racist, but just you know the sort of person who goes, uh, who might walk down a street and see a majority of people who are not of their own race. Let's say they might they suddenly clutch their bag a little bit more. Subconscious racism exists 50 years ago and it definitely exists nowadays. Mm. How about that? And finally, on Tuesday the 2nd of June, NASA admits that bacterium from Earth had survived on some thermal insulation situated on the moon for three years. It's an achievement for bacteria, which can survive space with little to no trouble, and a minor embarrassment for NASA as their rigorous decontamination processes apparently don't wash up too much. It's an interesting note to compare 50 years ago to the health-conscious world of 2020. This one does intrigue me because I remember reading a book when I was 11, so that's, what, 14 years ago, where they were talking about sending a probe up into space and how they clean it and clean it and clean it and clean it because the last thing they want to do is find an alien bacterium that is really just somebody's snot. So it shows that something like this... It really freaks you out, because if you're only going up to the moon once a year, it shows that you've really got to be on the money about what you're doing. So even something tiny like this can make the newspapers because of the massiveness of what you're doing and the rarity of it. Well, also, it gives the kind of worry, let's say, you know, uh, a spacecraft went to another planet and picked up some bacteria on its surface there. Clearly... If they've, you know, cleaned it and cleaned it, which they would if they collected it back on Earth, you're still a bit concerned there, aren't you, that there's going to be some alien bacteria in there? And we have oh no idea. Oh, God. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, well, or, you know, or, we, know or, that, or, that we know that there is bacteria on Mars. So imagine a manned Mars mission, for instance, going there, picking these things up. We have no idea what effect it could have. I mean, it probably wouldn't kill us all or anything like that. But, you know, it's just a, like, oh. I'm hoping 50 years on our uh, decontamination uh, methods are better. Yes, we spray him twice with Dettol. 
No, actually, we ingest it. Remember, Luke? We inject. Oh yes, it of course. Into ourselves. Ingestation, <laughs> injection, injection. Yeah. What can I say about that, really? Uh, other than I think that was the news, and now we shall get into Inferno, episode five, aired Saturday, the sixth of June, nineteen seventy. This is the apocalypse section. We quickly establish that this world is going to die, which is a rare staging point for Doctor Who, where victory, if any, is bittersweet and comes at the large cost. And I would argue that we need more of that, partly because I'm a negative Nancy and partly because it subverts the black and white morals of a hero and instead presents a more lucid grey morality where every great decision creates ripples. Uh, to put it into modern context, yes, applaud the lifesavers, but do not applaud 20,000 deaths as a good result and rage when the target is exceeded speedily because of government inaction. That's my take anyway. But back to the episode. I, I think you're absolutely right on the more grey morality of it, because it's about really working for that victory and... What do you do in order to get there when you're up against such adversity is the real you know, driving point of this, knowing that everyone's going to die, but there is something good that could come out of it, and that's really powerful. Mm. And uh, I definitely... Uh, the Doctor in this, he is morally grey, isn't he? He's not a hero. That's why we have Sutton, because the Doctor isn't the superhero character in this one, is he? He's just a sort of scientist, and it's this really does paint Sutton as the, like the the action hero type, doesn't it? He's the swashbuckler, as it were. Yeah, I know. Which, like, say, is what really sticks in the craw is that he, he's he's really dated now. All the other characters like, don't seem so bad, but like, Sutton, like, he is that very typical kind of like fifty years ago kind of gender politics. There isn't there. Hmm. Definitely, yeah. And it it does does as a modern view, it does stick in the craw a little bit that it's. He's like one hundred percent like the best person in the whole thing. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. He's he's like the pure good guy, and it's like, mm. but it, it's nice though. This this is rare that the Doctor isn't the hero of the piece, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So whilst whilst the Doctor wants to try and leg it, we shall be running straight towards the danger and look at this episode in greater detail. Penetration zero happens, and everybody sensible legs it. The Doctor, Starman and Sutton go into the drill head, which is oozing green slime galore. Under the anonymity of protective clothing, Starman whacks Sutton over the head with the intention to slime him. The Doctor saves Sutton and has a fight with Starman before Sutton saves the Doctor and the pair escape the drill head. Starman then seals off the drill head and infects all the unconscious scientists and technicians with the slime. Um... So in contrast to last week, it feels like we had a bit of a reversion here back to more like the 1960s, you know, where there's karate chops to the back and stuntmen of all the, the to hide the stuntmen, they're just in the protective gear, aren't they? So you can't see their faces. Well, it makes sense because it's hot. Yeah, I know. I know. It's just a, it's just a way for them to cut costs. But I, I mean, it does assist. Yeah. The, the main thing I was thinking of is, so we had that brutality of the scene in the, um, in the previous episode in the previous episode in the inter no the prison the jail room uh, yeah. and here we now just go back to 
karate chops to the back, which look really quite bad in comparison. Well, I think this shows that they're not focusing on this with an agenda. When it comes up that they can do it a bit more brutal, they do. And, in fact, as Pertwee's era goes on, the brutality goes right through the floor and battles become sort of the fun swashbuckling thing. But, especially in the demons with that Morris dancing, what was all that about? But the point is, is that this isn't something they're focusing on. So it's not that big a concern of theirs at this point in time. So so it was just happened to be a, a happy coincidence that they decided, oh, that this bit really suits having a slightly more brutal scene. And here, because they haven't got an agenda, it's just back to normal. Yeah. And it's instead, it's the storyline that gets to be all grim and dour instead of the actual action within it. The Doctor fears the worst as explosions keep on happening, earthquakes happen across the country, and the drill keeps on drilling. The brigade leader's been given charge of the situation by the authorities, but ultimately they've been left on their own to contain it. Unfortunately, it's a doomsday scenario, because the Earth's core cannot be capped, and it's going to disintegrate the world. Just go with it. In comes a mutant technician, and bullets do not stop him. Fire extinguishers do. The cold kills. Sutton and any remaining soldiers are held at basically gunpoint and are not allowed to escape. Instead, Sutton is instructed to do your duty for the Republic and the dictator. It's discipline at the worst possible time. So speaking of rules, I was thinking a lot about the Brigadier and how the portrayal of the top soldier here would betray something about how people were thinking about soldiers back then. So a lot of what the Brigadier has been doing this season is coordinating with the high-ups. He's a bit like Uhura in that he's like, hailing frequencies open to Geneva, Doctor. And, you know, in Spearhead, he speaks to Scobie. In the Silurians, he's speaking to um, the Ministry or whoever it is. Yeah. And in Ambassadors, it's Geneva. So he's sort of the the voice of establishment and the voice of rules. And well, he's almost he's almost even a bureaucrat in in our universe, isn't he? Absolutely. But we like him the most when he's bending or breaking the rules, like when he goes against Scobie. Uh, we dislike him when he kills all the Silurians, and we like him again even more in what is really one of his redeeming moments when he um, faces off against Carrington at the end of Ambassadors. That's when he's really like that pinnacle for the Doctor. So here it shows that the brigade leader is just consumed with this anger and this love of the rules. So it must show some perception of military officers being those rule-bearing types. And as we said last episode, fascism is basically the ultimate end goal of clinical bureaucracy. Absolutely. Which, you know, compared to how you can see officers today, you... Some some officers are seen as those lions leading donkeys, and others are seen sort of as war heroes who were up there commanding the men. It's... Mavericks that keep on walking. Exactly. British so we, officers we like don't our, duck. So we like our bureaucrats and our leaders to 
to follow the rules, but sometimes bend them as well. Bend them to good morals. It's also interesting yeah. that like pre-First World War officers are kind of considered really, you know, upstanding and wonderful and brandy sipping, and the grunts maybe were considered a bit more barbarous. But after World War Two, that division is well. In fact, after the Great War and then solidified by World War Two, you get a lot of respect for the grunts, and then the high ups not so much. So it's an interesting. Um, well, well, that that mix. reflects what what happens in the twentieth century because uh, in well, in Britain and in England in particular, uh, up until the First World War, the the army was a professional body it was it wasn't something that you were uh, forced to go into most people didn't britain had a tiny military at the start of the first world war um, and it was renowned for being very well trained but minuscule um and so i think that reflects before the first world war it was you know aristocratic you know, that's where they, the aristocrats went and so the people who went in there, the, the, who, who would choose to go into the army sort of thing? So we didn't think of them so highly. But then during the 20th century, people, loads of people experienced fighting in the military, didn't they? You know, because of conscription. Suddenly but, also, but also through volunteering, yeah. Yeah, so suddenly it's an experience that most people had never really exp- uh, seen or heard of anything about it apart from you know, the hero worship in newspapers, whatever, of the aristocratic officers who went out to Africa and, you know, put down the savage savages or whatever sort of thing, nonsense like that. And then in the 20th century, this experience is opened up to everyone. Most people would have known someone who fought on the front line in the war, won't they? In both yep. the First and Second World Wars. Every town, every village, pretty much. Yeah, but as, as you say, as the army swells its ranks to include any old iron, there is that correlation that as you include people of all backgrounds, classes, gender, races and all that, you include a greater sense of humanity. Yeah, and so that's why suddenly people start to have more respect for the grunts because their stories are known because everyone knew someone who fought in the war sort of thing. And conscription was still going on, wasn't it? Uh, well after the war. Um, yeah, somebody had to clean up the mess. Yeah, when did it? When did they end conscription? It, it was still going on in the fifties, I know. Um, did did it end in the sixties then? Late fifties, early sixties, I believe. Right. So there will still have been quite a few people around, uh, even in nineteen seventy, who will have. Even quite young people who would have uh, been conscripted to the army. These are things we must think of as people keep on calling for the retention or re-establishment of national service. Sutton, who's become a full doom-monger thanks to the doctor, tries to reason with Petra. No help's coming, except your fate, and she eventually does so. At this point, there's a cut scene with a radio broadcast about the disaster. The Doctor reasons that the best solution is for him to get back to the normal universe, and the brigade leader and section leader Shaw investigate the Doctor's console. Sutton and Petra plot their escape, whilst the Doctor shows the possibility of his escape with a brief time jump. So this is when Petra starts to realise she is going to die, and how they have unleashed the energies of the Earth's cause, the Doctor says. 
And it's an interesting look at the fact that the Earth really does have some power because nowadays when we're using our laptops or we're throwing a plastic bottle in the bin, we're not really thinking about the effect we're having on the Earth. And the fact that back then they were saying, you know, the Earth is screaming out in pain, it shows that this idea of the Earth's power and how it will come back to destroy you, it shows that it it didn't work. Nothing has worked. And now we're screwed. Which is why it's still being referenced in Doctor Who episodes 50 years on. Exactly. Well, yeah, it was, the, the big difference is, so there are more and more voices saying the Earth will destroy us. We're simultaneously more aware of it, but also more indifferent to it. Absolutely. And the the relationship man has with the power of the Earth is kind of going a bit all over the place. So I wonder how this might be worded if this was made by somebody from 2020. It, 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 it's strange to think of the Earth, you know, belching out Krakatoa because we kind of have this idea that it's much more slow-moving and it's not a hurricane that will just overnight go... It's more um, cancer, which rots you from the inside over I, I four think, years. I think we have a, a good example from New Who um, about how they might approach something like the Earth. Well, I mean, this is more humans than the Earth itself, but where, as at the Sontaran one, where it's the atmosphere gets poisoned. Mm. So I feel like it would be something more akin to that, where if it was the Earth, some sort of vent might open up somewhere from the insert and so rather than being a volcanic eruption it sort of it just is emitting all of these gases that poisons the earth's atmosphere but that would be slower i'm thinking more about the episode from the most recent series with the plastic that gets into all of the birds that's a lot more slow moving and it feels a lot Mm. more real and is definitely based on an obvious real world issue so rather than Right, we, we we pressed the ground too hard, now we exploded it. It's more, we pressed the ground too hard at a thousand different points all over the Earth, and now our food's gone. Yeah, well, that's ultimately what uh, climate change is, isn't it? It's, it's the death of the Earth's climate by a thousand cuts. So this is rather miserable. Can we move on? Yes, yeah. Alas, we're dealing with hard-hitting apocalypse scenarios, and we are not short of them 50 years on. Stalman speaks out through the communication system at the drill head, convincing Petra to let him and the technicians out. They've all mutated, and they attack, turning Benton in the process. Our remaining humans take refuge in the brigade leader's office, and the doctor cuts the mutants off from the drill head, so that they have time to think whilst the mutants acclimatise. In the other universe, Sir Keith Gold's driver has been blackmailed to make sure that Sir Keith doesn't get to the drill site until after penetration zero. Sir Keith managed to convince the ministers to suspend the project, but oh no, he gets involved in a car crash. In the parallel universe, the mutants begin to attack 
after most of the humans agree to the doctor's plan to escape. One point I think is about is at the same time as when we see the prime wards is that they do that shot they did in the um, interrogation scene last episode here they you know where the shot like the sudden you see all their eyes kind of go what the hell sort of thing hmm. that sudden take 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 so again we're thinking what they had like three or four cameras all kind of at the same time they just switched the feed between all of them they didn't want to edit scenes much did they at this point absolutely not you were probably still doing it with a razor blade and glue and indeed it's, it's even more expensive to do so given its color film as well of course yeah i was saying there's there are there is an absence of the you know like in 60s doctor episodes where it just kind of fades to black and then another scene so you know that's where there's a there was a fucking edit there um i've not really noticed that this series this season no, but then you, you'd have to think in the case of 1970s Who, they believed truly that it, it might be their last season. So what's the point in including fades to black for outside overseas sales? Oh, is that what that was for? Uh, yes, yeah, it was. Um, right. And indeed, it's probably, if you've seen them in Classic Who, it's probably because it's been recovered from overseas, which includes the overseas fade to black for the adverts. Oh, interesting. TV history. So I've read a lot about werewolves in cinema and what somebody in the 1970s might have been thinking about werewolves. Because when Benton turns into a primord and the way they look, they're werewolves. Essentially, the way that Benton's transformation goes where it fades and more hair is stuck on him, that's basically from the wolfman and from 1941 and is essentially how it would be going until 1981 so that's essentially how people thought of werewolves transforming back then so all standard there once you get past the 40s like with all monsters like frankenstein and dracula it's basically all schlock and abbott and costello garbage until you get to the early 60s you get some hammer horror stuff once that fades out you just get foreign stuff. So in the 60s, it's mostly foreign stuff that's involving werewolves, apart from the monsters, where it's this cute little kid. Also, werewolves look rather human. It's not until the mid-70s that they look properly animalistic. So essentially, what I'm trying to say is, is that people's memory of werewolves would be they were good a while ago and then they kind of became a joke and it was just a guy with some hair stuck on his face running around. No one would really have watched these underground Italian movies that no one's ever heard of. What I'm trying to say is werewolves were basically a joke at this point. They were that thing from ages ago that maybe Hammer, you know, made people like it a bit more. But when you've got the monsters in there, these things are jokes at this point. So in this serial, the werewolves are just a point that nobody cares about so they've not even bothered to do much with them um or you make them look good or whatever because that was the point no one cared but in new who we have the werewolf episode and it's the it's like the star attraction of that one in terms of the special effects they put loads into that didn't they yeah and it's a proper animal in that one as opposed to just a dude yeah and yeah and it's and it's pretty brutal, all the, all the just orderly 
just you only hear the audio of the brutality, don't you, on that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and you get the reaction shots again as people watch it devour humans. Interesting, interesting. Fifty years ago so, and now, indeed, there there are there are some progress points, and then there are some bits that that stay the same for werewolves, for apocalypse scenarios, and for Doctor Who and the context in which it is surrounding. Thank you very much for watching. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there, it helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. We shall be back next week to howl about the penultimate episode of Doctor Who Season 7, Inferno Episode 6. Until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you and goodbye.